Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You are listening to the next Best Picture podcast. Friends. And this is our review of The Green Knight. Brothers and sisters. Who can regale me and my queen with some myth? Oh, greatest of kings, let one of your knights try to land a blow against me. Indulge me in this game. I will be thee. your quest for you. And what do you hope to gain from facing all of this? Honor. That is why a knight does what he does. Are you ready? All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for The Green Knight, and the story is as follows. King Arthur's headstrong nephew embarks on a daring quest to confront the Green Knight, a mysterious giant who appears at Camelot. Risking his head, he sets off on an epic adventure to prove himself before his family and court. The film is starring Dev Patel, Alicia Vikander, Joel Egerton, Sarita Chanduri, Sean Harris, and Ralph Innocent. It is directed and written by David Lowry. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Sarah Clements. Hello. Dan Baer. Off with your head. And Casey Lee Clark. Hello. All right. The Green Knight, a movie that we've been waiting for for a very long time. (laughs) It's funny. And it was delayed one year hence. <laughs> so here we are, finally getting a chance to see this movie. I apologize to all the UK listeners out there right now. I know that they had their release delayed again as well. But soon, hopefully soon. Man, there's a lot to feast on with this movie. This was definitely a cinematic smorgasbord. 
I feel very, very full talking about this one right now. Christmas feast. <laughs> exactly. There you go. This project is one that David Lowry, he has said, he has said himself that when he chose to start tackling it, uh, he felt like he, you know, may, may have bitten off more than he could chew once he realized like how deep the story can actually go. Being that it's based off of this epic poem, you know, when you hear the premise of this movie, you think to yourself, oh, it doesn't seem to really be much there necessarily. But David Lowry injects so much symbolism into this movie and so many themes that it's a film that I feel is resonating with people in different ways. Uh, That is unless, of course, if you are not a, you know, hardcore cinephile like most of us and you might be bored by watching the movie. You might walk out. I don't know. But one thing is for sure. David Lowry never, ever, ever repeats himself. He is always challenging himself as an artist, as a storyteller, and The Green Knight is no exception. You can either love it, hate it, but it's definitely worth talking about. So let's get into it. Starting off first with Sour Clements, what did you think of The Green Knight? I mean, it's a dizzying experience, isn't it? I feel like it's one of those films you need to watch several times in order to really grasp all the themes and symbolism, but... um, What stands out to me, really, when I think about it, I saw it yesterday. So, you know, after sleeping on it, what I'm really thinking about um, now, it's sort of, is it some, you know, environmentalist civilization versus nature theme, which is brilliantly sort of explained by um, Alicia Vikander's monologue, which I hope to listen to again soon, because I feel like I didn't fully grasp it um, on my first viewing, but... Lowry captures, you know, Arthurian times in the otherworldly way that I always pictured it. You know, it feels like everything, the season, it feels like the whole, you know, the seasons feel different. The sun shines differently. And, you know, even the fog rolls differently. um, Tapping back to that nature theme. And it makes you feel the magic of the time, too. And it makes us believe through his picturesque cinematography and that alien score and astounding sound design that myths of, you know, giants, for example, weren't always myths. And through, um, I'm, they pronounce Gow, Garwin's name like differently several times in the film. Like, yeah. do we really know what, anyway, we'll get into that. So I'm just going <laughs> to say Garwin <laughs> coming, you know, through his coming of age journey, we see that our history has, you know, um, we've landed more blows to the Green Knight than, you know, than we've returned promises and we haven't shown it the respect um, or met it as equals. And so through, you know, flashes of Garwin's future, we see our own present and how if we had not, um, if we had continued to break our promises to God's green earth, sorry, I'm losing my thoughts here. It's just, I keep thinking about every scene in the movie and I'm like, oh, this is just so much. Anyway, I'm just saying how, you know, the film really thinks about how we're treating the earth. And, you know, if we had truly treated it with the respect um, you know, we could see the magic and wonder that Lowry has given us with this film. And I think it's both extremely beautiful, but are also um, sorrowful to think about. Well, definitely a lot to unpack there. We'll definitely have mm-hmm. to uh, do our best to, you know, tackle that piece by piece here in a little bit. But I pretty much agree with you there, Sarah. It, it is a very dizzying experience, so much so that I feel like unless if you have you know, your thoughts written down or organized, um, it, it can be hard to almost put into words 
like I said, just how much this film can resonate with you and, and, and on what level as well. Um, there were things that even in your opening there that I definitely felt and there were things that I didn't feel. And I also have things to say, too, that uh, you didn't mention. And that's OK. And I think that that's like the beauty of this movie is that there are all these different layers of interpretation here. So let's keep it going. Let's hear next from Casey Lee Clark. Casey, what did you think of The Green Knight? It's a lot to take in, definitely. I saw it last night, so I still I both have it so fresh, but I'm also I, I definitely want to see. I think I'll gain more from it on repeat viewings. It just, if anything, it seems like a film that I think I'll like only more as it as I watch it. You know, I feel like a lot of it I ended up going over my head. Um, I saw it with my boyfriend and some of our friends, and some of them knew a lot more of the lore and are just more familiar with these types of stories. And so talking with them after I realized there was just things that I just completely went over my head, things that I like didn't understand that it made me gain appreciation for what it was trying to say, what goes on even just plot wise in general. I think it looks stunning. I think that is just easy to say. I think everyone will say that it just looks so beautiful. I also just love all the camera movements. There's so much, again, dizzying things that Lowry does with his camera that is just so fascinating. I think Dev Patel is perfectly cast as the type of protagonist that we root for and are worried for, but we can also find it believable, the certain scenarios that he can be in. Um, And I'm just, I'm a big fan of him in general, and I'm a big fan of David Lowry, so I'm just happy that both are getting the success of this film. I feel like there's so much to talk about that, like, just, like, opening thoughts is, like, I don't even know where to begin. All right. All right. Let's see if we can help, uh, you know, definitely. Let's see if we can all help each other. This podcast yeah. review, like, <laughs> contextualize and put it all into order here. Dan, what about yourself? So I am a huge fan of Arthurian legend. I have been ever since I was a kid. And so that made me very, very, very excited for this movie. It was probably my most anticipated film of 2020. And when it got moved, I cursed the high heavens, um, but knew that it would come out eventually and that I would probably love it. Um, The thing is, is that I, it has been years since I have read this particular piece of lore, Gwen and the Green Knight, it like a long time ago. Like I do not, I did not remember much of it at all. And watching the movie was a really, really strange experience. And I think in many ways it's meant to be, but huh, the first half or so I was, um, I, I was having trouble with it to say the least, but then something, it, it pulls this really amazing trick of getting more interesting and more intriguing as it goes along. And by the second half, I was so fully enraptured in it and what was happening. And especially the last sequence, just <laughs> that threw me for a complete loop I thought it was just so, so stunning. And that that was at that point when I finally realized what this movie was doing, which is sort of like, it's this meditation on these sorts of stories and what they mean and what it actually means to be a romantic hero in the 
old English sense of this chivalric person who was supposed to give up everything but the good and go on a journey that turns them into an even more pious person worthy of a woman, which is just really weird, but also deeply Christian, so whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And I was so floored that they managed to pack basically Gwen's entire character arc into like the last 10 minutes of the movie. Um, It's super ballsy and it played so well for me. And I remember getting up when it was done in the, after maybe a minute or two of the credits had rolled, because I was just like, I have to get up. I have to get out of here. I have to stand to make sure that I'm still capable of standing and then I just sort of like walked around in a daze in the theater lobby. I'm sure people thought I was like a crazy homeless person that had got in or something. Um, because I just like like standing for a while and muttering to myself and then pacing and muttering to myself. And then I went home and on my way home, I pulled up the Wikipedia page for the poem to Sir Gwen in the Green Knight, which was a bad idea. <laughs> because as an adaptation... This is terrible. <laughs> I mean, I've heard that he definitely changed a lot. He he basically perverted the entire meaning of the, the story. <laughs> but in a weird way, like, that's what I love about it. Like, that it's taking this thing and just taking the very basics of the story and some of the same plot points and turning it into this, like almost deconstructed version of all these different types of chivalric romances that are around. And I I don't think that I've seen anything like it in a number of ways, but perhaps especially in that way. And that left me, even though thinking somewhat less of it as an adaptation, made me think more of it as a movie and as an artistic statement. My relationship to this movie is very complicated. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, So as many of you all know, I absolutely adore medieval historical or fantasy epics. I eat them up every single time. And I will admit, sometimes they're really well done. And sometimes they're really terrible. I just because I like them doesn't mean that they're all great. So I went into this movie with the highest of the high expectations. This was probably my second most anticipated film of the year. And I've been a huge fan of David Lowery's work. I think that he has already given us a masterpiece in his filmography at this point with a ghost story. And as I mentioned before, he never seems to make the same film more than once. But Green Knight is definitely, I think, skewing closer to some of the stuff that a ghost story was getting at in terms of being really a thinking person's movie and less so, you know, a slice of old school entertainment like The Old Man and the Gun or a family film like Pete's Dragon. And he's tackled all of these movies with varying degrees of tone and genre skillfully well. But It's these kinds of movies that I am definitely more intrigued by coming from him for sure. And a lot of that just has to do a lot with the themes and the reflection that one has after uh, screening, you know, one of his films and, you know, the questions that you then are forced to ask yourself. And as I mentioned before, we all probably walked away from this movie. I mean, all of our opening thoughts here have been very 
dissimilar with one single thing uniting all of us, and that is we all feel the need to want to watch this again. <laughs> and if that's not a brilliant piece of uh, filmmaking right there, I don't know what is. Now, I have heard some people say that, you know, if you need to watch a movie more than once to get it, then, you know, that's actually a detriment you know, to the movie. Don't lie. That was me. I said that to you this weekend. Don't lie. I'll take it. But I don't know if I necessarily (laughs) agree with that, though, Dan. I I say that because I do believe that one can watch a movie be so challenged by it on an initial viewing because of even preconceived expectations, whatever the situation might be. But once you've seen it and once you know what it is now, you can then watch it a second time and have those expectations in place and know what you're getting yourself into. And as a result, I think you can then sometimes get on the film's wavelength a little bit better and start to dive even deeper with it. I mean, I could think of numerous times this has happened. You know, David Lynch films immediately come to mind. But with all that said and all that out of the way here, it's a gorgeous looking movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, my Lord. Mm-hmm. Lord. <laughs> Every shot could be in a museum. Seriously. The cinematography in this is out of this world good. And so is the costume design, the production design. Mm-hmm. If we're going to just start off with technicals here for just a second, I got to admit, Daniel Hart's score was, I thought, maybe being too overused in the first act a bit. Uh, but then I really, really like when the Green Knight enters into King Arthur's uh round table like courtroom that that's when the music for the first time since the movie began stops really really like that choice <laughs> the sound design though like oh, every time the incredible. green night moved like the bark crunching or whatever i was like oh my god incredible big footsteps and even mm-hmm. like they even emphasize sort of the horse's hooves on the mm-hmm. on the you know on the stone i was like oh this is so good even for such a small budget at 15 million dollars i even thought the visual effects looked really good on the fox the 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 walking the walking giants i was very surprised when i saw that the budget was only 15 million dollars they really stretched it pretty far i felt like i mean really truly you know i saw this yesterday which is the day after i saw jungle cruise and this fox and this 15 million dollar movie looks a lot better than the cgi leopard in jungle cruise which cost how many hundreds of millions mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty incredible so just saying you know there have been reports that david lowry went back to the editing room he had the option to give us originally um, a more accessible version of this movie that was probably going to be uh, more digestible mainstream entertainment. And supposedly he went back into the editing room and re-tinkered around with the story a bit more. And the, the version that he wanted, which was less accessible, is the version that we got. And I do think that that does not only come across, obviously, in terms of the themes of the movie and kind of the feeling it leaves one with when walking out of the theater. But I don't know, guys. Did anyone else notice that there were just some crossfade edits and moments in this that it was just like, this feels like it's too overly edited at times? I mean, I love crossfade, so that part of it is not my... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I'm saying. There's a part where like, he's getting on his armor about to go out, and they're they're just like fading it and fading it and fading I'm like, oh, I love that. I keep that. I think there's more of just a lot of like, we're just walking and we're just doing this and we're just going to stop 
and stand. But then again, not a light spoiler near the end. He basically says, is that all there is or something? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's kind of like my friend was saying, he's like, it's amazing how little happens in this movie. It's kind of like almost this, um, not like anthology style of storytelling, but almost like it is broken into yeah episodic yeah i was gonna say broken into chapters right i that's another thing too did could anybody at a certain point make out what the titles on the screen actually said Uh, yeah Yeah. maybe i don't know how to read but (laughs) there were some moments where i was like okay i got the first word but i totally missed what the second word was supposed to be saying (laughs) no me too i mean i had my glasses on but i still had to squint i was like i don't know what this is saying some of them some of them i got some of them i got Mm -hmm. like the journey out a kindness you know i got some of them down but then after a little while i was like wait lowry stop using this script writing i i I only know how to read (laughs) this way um but no it does have that quality to it right so in that regard it's like the movie is broken up into these series of individual scenes and casey you're right the connective tissue between them all is uh sir garwin or Gawain, I don't, I don't know. I, people say it so differently many times in this movie. I don't know. It's because in the old English, there are like multiple. He is referred to in, by multiple names. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Dev Patel. <laughs> we'll go with. Sexy. Hi. <laughs> so coming from Sarah, that is a compliment. He, he and his sexy hair are walking from place to place, from scene to scene. And. I agree with what was said before there, uh, Casey, that it's all deliberate. What David Lowry is doing here in terms of making the journey long, slow, arduous, very meditative, I think it does threaten to lose us as an audience, especially in the second act. But as mentioned before by Dan, the finale, the third act... Holy crap, was that a jaw-dropping stunner. And that is where, like, the the editing of this movie, like, that is when it really kicks into high gear and really goes into something special, along with the score. Mm. Um, It just, everything about the last, I think it's like 10 to 20 minutes of this, is just the most beautiful filmmaking. Although, I gotta say, I'm not in love with the cinematography of this whole movie. Hmm. It does something interesting thing, which is you can actually track it as the film goes on. It goes from dark to light in the Mm -hmm. terms of how exposed the images are. But, and I like that a lot thematically, but so many scenes in the early part of this are just like, and maybe it was just my theater, but they were so dark that I could barely see what was happening. Oh, yeah, there's this one section where it's like pitch black and I could barely see him in the scenes. Oh, I like that. I do have a note written down here that the contrast is turned up so high that the the blacks are so black that I yeah, I, I wrote I made a note about that as well, that it like it was mostly the interiors. The exteriors yes. look fine, but anytime it's the interiors where it's dimly lit. Yeah, I agree. It's like the blacks are too black sometimes that it like kind of. It kind of takes out the details of the actors' faces, the production design around them. And the production design is freaking spectacular, mm-hmm. as are the costumes. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. and just like I I want to see all this fantastic work and I want to see the work that the actors are doing because they're all doing such interesting things and they're for there to be scenes where we can't see that I just like get what you're going for thematically but like just give it another pass through color correction <laughs> i like something that sarah said there in the beginning about how this movie's commenting on the theme of nature you know when we do get these exteriors there's a great emphasis placed on the forest the woods the hills the streams and this is all definitely by design, especially by the time, of course, we get to the end. Listen, everything just makes sense by the time you get to the end, okay? <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but I really, really like everything you said there, Sarah, because I do think that that is the universal metaphor that Lowry is going for, where, okay, some people are going to fixate on the themes of honor Uh, which we'll get into after this. But I do think that the universal theme is definitely about nature and the blows that we have dealt to it and how we are deserved, deserved a a blow back at some point. And I haven't even, hadn't even thought of that. So that just goes to show you how people can perceive this movie. It makes complete sense. I just didn't even like, it didn't even cross my mind. You know what, you know what it was for me? There was a moment where, everything got covered in grass. Mm. That was like the moment that it, it became very, very clear to me. And it was just like this idea of mother nature taking its, uh, retaking its course, if you will. And like course correcting, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Covering all of us, uh, in grass all over again. Yeah. Or when he, the green knight put his ax down and grass kind of grew mm-hmm. up from the, from the stone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, I want to ask, because the one element of this movie that I did not expect at all was I did not expect Sarita Shudhuri as um, Sir Garwin's uh, mother. I did not expect her to play the role that she played in this. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) So... What did you guys make of that? And did it work for you? I mean, I'm all for like bad bitches doing magic. So I was <laughs> I was into it. <laughs> and also like so 
Um, I'm just going to bring up, you know, the scenes with Joel Edgerton and Alicia Vikander. That's sort of the part of the film where I really was not into it that much. But then reading more, I realized that her mother, I mean, um, Garwin's mother is basically controlling like every single aspect of this entire movie. And she's even controlling, you know, Alicia's character. And I guess Joel's character is actually supposed to be the Green Knight. Like he's the, I, maybe Dan could talk about this more. I yeah. Anyway, so, and you know, the blind woman the was actually the mother and stuff. And I thought that that yeah, was just she so wears like. The- Things when she does the magic, she has her eyes covered. Mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm like learning the whole, so much. The whole mm-hmm. belt thing, I think it's just turned this whole movie into something more Freudian. And I was like, girl, I don't know what's going on here, but like, <laughs> I need to watch this five more times to really know <laughs> <Now laughs> what this lady's doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I, so it's sort of glossed over in the movie that Gwen is the son of Arthur's sister. Morgoth's and which I was not really fully understanding the blood relation there, but I did right. get, I, I, but they did communicate well enough that he was King Arthur's nephew, so that did make sense. Yeah. So the thing about the legend is most people know Morgoth's not as the mother of Gwen, but as the mother of Mordred, who's the one who eventually kills king arthur right or or at least pays a heavy hand in it depending on which version of the legend you read whatever and mordred looks very works very closely with morgan le fay who is a witch who has it out for arthur and she um the old woman in the uh castle he stays at who has the things over her eyes and never speaks that is supposed to be morgan le fay and Mm. she the original legend is the one that is controlling the green knight who is also the man that runs the house that he stays in okay but let me take a step back here for a moment is it fair to say that an interpretation of this movie is that all of this is taking place within sir garwin's head and none of this is real. The way that this is presented in this movie, yes, absolutely. That's what I was thinking too, because yeah. I understood that his mother was definitely casting a spell and controlling this whole journey that would push him towards this moment of self-realization as to whether or not if he was an honorable or a dishonorable man. I really understood and got the mechanizations of her pulling the strings to make this happen. I guess for me, the confusion was stemming from what was her motivation for making this happen. But then something occurred to me where, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, um, I was getting the impression that because she was no longer allowed to be in court. She's looked down upon by the locals. She gets called a witch and things like that. She is just wanting her son to have a better life. And it's just as it's just as simple as that, right? Yeah, I think I've read that it's just a very dramatic way of making your son grow up. <laughs> which yeah. is like, which I thought was so simplistic <laughs> to the point that I was like, it can't just be that, right? But then I thought to myself, you know what? Maybe it is just that. And then maybe, just maybe, that's just one interpretation and it doesn't have to be just that and that's okay too (laughs) yeah exactly yeah i went darker with it but that was also me reading my own knowledge of arthurian legend into it (laughs) okay which was that because of how it okay so in the 
in the poem, and this is why I was kind of like, I needed to walk around and think about things after it ended, because mm-hmm. in the poem, he doesn't die. Y- y- yes. Okay. He does, his head does not get chopped off. But but also, too, it, do we know that that is exactly what happens here? Well, right. Okay. So whatever. But <laughs> <laughs> it's heavily implied, but whatever, especially by the post credit scene, but whatever. So, There's a post credit scene? Yeah. You didn't know? No. Oh, oh see, I was God. in such stunned silence that I stayed through the entire credits and I was rewarded by, you know, <laughs> David Lowry just knocked me out so much I couldn't move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when this is over, you guys have to explain it. Basically, there's like a little girl and she finds uh, Sir Garwin's crown and she puts it on her head. Oh. Yeah. So it, it's implied, like Dan said, that. He, I, I, no, I think like it is implied that the crown being left, mm-hmm. you know, alone implies that he did have his head chopped off, but he doesn't have the crown in the scene with the Green Knight. So it's kind of ambiguous as to like mm-hmm. when this happened. Um, but then again, the Green Knight, if you just want to look at it as none of it's real, none of it exists. All it's implying is that when the time comes and every man has to at one point or another face their death, are they going to face it bravely or are they going to face it as a coward? Simple as that. Yeah, I mean, there are numerous ways you could interpret that. My interpretation that I settled on upon leaving and thinking about it for a while, which is maybe not my ultimate interpretation of what happened, but we'll see how the movie ages. But... I went along a similar lines with, you know, his mother is, she is looked down upon and she's been exiled from court and blah, 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 blah. Right. And my knowledge of Gwen the character is that he was one of Arthur's favored knights. And so this whole um, thing that she does is to destroy him in the eyes of Arthur take something away from him like she has had something taken away from her and she doesn't want to do it this way but she sees no other way and she will put him to this test and what will happen will happen um but the other way of looking at it is just that <laughs> like maybe he does let him live in the poem the whole thing is as all these chivalric romances are, everything is a test. Like literally everything that happens along the journey is a test. And But the frustrating thing about this particular movie is that usually in this type of narrative, they meet a test and they struggle, but they pass it. And then they struggle again, but they pass the next test. And the third test, they struggle even more deeply, but they pass and they are rewarded. Mm -hmm. And in this one, he doesn't pass any test. Right. Until the last one, which is, I think, part of why that last sequence struck me so much is because it does end with him taking off the protection and releasing his fear of doing a pretend having done the wrong thing and not being ready for the consequences. It's interesting, right? Because you think about the hubris of man and the ego of man to take on a challenge like this and presume that it's all just fun and games, right? But then when the consequences come knocking at your door, it's like you knew you knew I I told you what was going to happen. 
and you chose to not take it seriously. Well, now the time has come. And I do find it very interesting that he's going on like this journey uh, where it certainly has to, in his mind, end with his death. And that's like the thing that I find very fascinating about it is that like the rules are set for what the game is. And he knows that this ends with the Green Knight delivering a similar equal blow back to him, a.k.a. getting his head cut off. So he talks about returning back and having all of his honor and greatness when he does return and so on and so forth to the point that I was just like, man, the the arrogance of this guy to think that he can outsmart, outwit this game and come back and have all this glory. And it does make you wonder in terms of the way that many men are raised. And, you know, I won't exclude ladies out there. You know, we'll just say people in general. The way many people are raised is we're raised to think that we need to obtain some form of greatness or glory in our lives. Some 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 sort of greater purpose. Well, and especially then, like, that was how you became a knight. Right. Was you were sent out questing and you did some, you know, glamorous, heroic deeds and you rewarded with a place in history and at the round table and with a beautiful woman by your side. And I I love stories that are about telling stories and why we tell stories and I really love that he is acting like, okay, I am uh, I am part of this established kind of story. But at every turn, he keeps doing the wrong thing because he does what he thinks it's just supposed to happen. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. there's that expectation of like, I'm bound for greatness. And yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that hubris. Exactly. Yeah. And, and isn't it funny, though, that in the end and it's like we can all get into our own personal interpretations of how we all choose to walk through life you know it's like I I gave up on there being any kind of like greater purpose in my life you know a few years ago and just started to enjoy living my life Mm -hmm. and I do feel that for Dev Patel's character in this movie that is why the journey is the way that it is depicted in this film from David Lowry, where, yes, the ending is incredible. Yes, it ties everything together. Absolutely, the first act is super intriguing in terms of its setup. But the second act of this movie, and it's the part where I think it is going to obviously divide most people, is the section I think Lowry cares about the most, which is it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And it's about these little scenes that he encounters along the way that make him into the person he is ultimately going to become by the time he gets to the end. I think that that is ultimately the way that we all should be living is living more so in the moment and not with this expectation of achieving some level of greatness because it because it, here's the thing in order to obtain that what is the cost? Mm-hmm. And I love that this movie also illustrates that so beautifully uh, th- for Garwin, what that cost entails, like the visual storytelling in the third act to not have any dialogue and to have it be all just sound and visual mm-hmm. is probably the most incredible type of sequence like I've seen of that since the opening of uh, Pixar's Up, if you ask me. I 
<laughs> it's so beautiful. Yeah. Like, that was the big I, sequence I, that reminded me of Ghost Story. Like I said to my boy, yes, I was like, yeah. if you like that, you'll like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it reminded me a lot of a ghost story. Very, very true. The best parts of a ghost story. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I love it so much. I, I remember leaving the theater and I like, wanted to shout at the top of my lungs like, Cinema! Yep. <laughs> because that last sequence, like, it is everything that I love movies for. Let me ask you a question, Sarah. I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Do you want to live long enough to see everything in your life get lost? Uh, this is very deep for a Monday night match. <laughs> it's a very deep movie. <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that. This is the kind of stuff I was asking myself when The Green Knight was over. I, I look at movies like The Father with Anthony Hopkins and I say to myself, God, do I do I want to live long enough to get to that mm. point? Yeah, I see what you mean. And same thing with a movie like this where it's like you're in pursuit of this idea of glory, of honor. And I think it's all just a bullshit illusion that the world has fabricated as a way to keep us going into old into old age because at the end of the day i like i said i really i I find as i get older that we just need to live more in the present and take life as it as it comes much more so than pushing ourselves to the brink uh in, in search of something that we may never obtain but instead it's like that level, like I said, that level of arrogance is also something that, uh, as you said, Sarah, is like tied to the way that we also treat others around us and the earth around us as well. Um, everything just comes at a secondary expense in our pursuit of our own goals and our own ambitions and desires. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I love about this movie is that the ending, beautiful as it is, I think is amazingly cynical. Because that montage that is so fantastic is basically the life of Gwen that we know from the legends. And then Lowry is, is saying, or seems to be saying, no, mm-hmm. this is what really happens. What really happens is you make all the mistakes and you finally realize what it truly means to be chivalrous and honorable. and you still lose. Don't you love, though, that the movie tells us in the very, very, I think it's like the opening lines that this is not your typical King Arthur story, nor his sons. Like, yeah. I, I love that the movie kind of sets that tone for us up front, that this is not going to be like any other Arthurian legend that we've seen before. Yeah, and I thought they meant it in a very different way than they ended up being. <laughs> I did, like, I love, that was one of the things that I love in that that opening voiceover seemed very, um, ha, almost Lord of the Rings-esque. Mm-hmm. And then the, see, the um, sequence with Winifred reminded me of Ugetsu and Quaidon. And then there was another oh, yeah. there was another moment that reminded me of some other like very strange movie for inspiration and I cannot remember what oh um I thought of the picture of Torian Gray. Oh uh, that picture of him uh that she quote unquote paints. <laughs> oh my God, yeah that was very yeah. interesting. I, I, that's something that I like watching it. I said to myself, yep, there's definitely 
there's definitely a lot going on here right now. My mind does not have the capacity to understand or wrap my head around it just yet. That's something that I'm looking to explore more in a in a future rewatch because clearly there's a ton of symbolism in all of that. Yeah. And quite frankly, also, too, um, I don't believe that <laughs> the methods by which she actually achieves that portrait, like, I, I don't believe any of that had been, like, probably invented. <laughs> no, I think that was a really yeah. old. Like, that was a method of photography, but I was like, that was, like, way after this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which like, goes from the point, then, of, like, oh, this isn't real. This ha- this castle's not real. These people yeah. aren't real. I mean, I mean, it's clearly clearly a fantasy, you know? Uh, but, like, that was, like, the moment where I was like, there's got to be greater meaning here in terms of why, why would you use technology that has not yet been invented and portray that in this movie? Unless if you're making some sort of grander commentary about <laughs> either the character or <laughs> Lowry commenting on some aspect of maybe even filmmaking itself. I don't know. <laughs> like, I was like, I was like, I, I just drew my hands up at a certain point. I was like, I can't do this right now. I, so it really confused me because at first I thought she was doing, um, uh, this technique that have any of you seen uh, Tim's Vermeer? Uh, no. Um, so it's a documentary by uh, one of Penn and Teller about a friend of theirs who is, becomes obsessed with the Dutch painter Vermeer. And he wants to paint a Vermeer because the way he painted light is so crazy. And he built this um, contraption that a lot of people believed that Vermeer used to paint his things, which basically um, shines a reflection, uh, like a pinpoint reflection onto a piece of canvas. And he would just paint until he had exactly matched what was in it and then move it, you know, like a centimeter to the right or whatever, and then continue doing that. And that's what I thought she was doing at first. And then it turned out like, oh, no, that is actually not. And that was when I was like, okay, my big takeaway from that was like, oh, so she's magic, too. <laughs> that was my big takeaway. <laughs> in talking about the performances in The Green Knight, obviously, one starts with Dev Patel here. Um, while I don't think that this is a career best yet, well, it might be. I don't know. Once again, I got to give it another watch. It's definitely up there for him, I would say. Um, but definitely not so much a showy role. Um, but I do think he handles it quite remarkably well. And he has tremendous uh, screen presence. Uh, I do think that there is a deliberate choice, though, to have a lot of the uh, characters that he encounters along his journey to be obviously the more showy roles. I mean, you have Alicia Vikander playing two roles here, <laughs> you know, for goodness sake. Uh, what did you guys think of his interactions with her, Joel Egerton, Sean Harris? I mean, what did you guys think of the cast here? I hate whoever led me to believe that there was a scene where Dev Patel and Joel Edgerton had sex. <laughs> I feel, we, get, we, get I a feel, lot, we get a little something, yeah. I feel very betrayed and very lied to. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I actually really liked what they did that because that is in the poem. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah is I like how they sort of showed the homoeroticism of that is in, you know, those Arthurian texts. In the poem, they actually do that several times, not just when he leaves. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because 
uh, Joel Egerton has that line, like, I will give you, I will kill an animal for you and give it to you every day here, but you must give me whatever you receive in this castle or whatever it is. And the wife just keeps keeps tempting him and keeps getting him to uh, kiss her. And so when she does kiss him, he kisses the the male host. <laughs> Which made a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah. I, I do like that there is all of these moments here along his journey where it really goes against this idea of like what we would expect a uh, like a great hero to be. Um, you know, he gets robbed by Barry Keoghan as this like scavenger. Um, he loses his virtue to, you know, um, Alicia Vikander. Uh, well, the second time. <laughs> and then there's also um, I, I think it's kind of just incredible how all of these scenes, I expected them to play out differently each time. All these interactions he has with all these other characters and knowing what he's in pursuit of. He's in pursuit of becoming an honorable knight. And it seems like every single one of these interactions, it just reveals more about who his what his true nature actually is. And you realize that, man, this guy can never be an honorable knight. He's going against all the things that any honorable knight would do in these situations, you know? Well, it's interesting because he kind of goes out there and like kind of naive. He says that he hasn't done much of anything to Arthur in that, um, in their first scene together when they interact. And when he does go and, the, Barry Keoghan is so good at playing a little shit. It, such a little, <laughs> it, it kind of scares me. Like between this and Killing of a Sacred Deer, just like uh, Barry. He's a phenomenal actor. You know, David Lowry saw Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yes! <laughs> I gotta have him. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but so, and he has that scene and he is like, oh, like, thank you so much, kind sir, for, you know, for helping me on my way. And the guy's like, you don't have anything you just have your words to thank me yep like it's almost like the world is smacking him in the face you know like um you be kind and so he does eventually give him a token and then he gets robbed for his trouble which is like a thing where it's like you would expect him to fight off these guys get his you know weapons and his horse back and everything else and yeah he doesn't. Instead, he's just like left there to starve to death. And he keeps learning the wrong lessons from like each interaction that he has. Yeah, I, I think it's just showing, um, you know, knights as incredibly um, flawed, just yeah. human human beings. You know what I mean? Because I feel like mm -hmm. in a lot of films we see knights as just these like courageous, like godlike people, but they're really not, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, so much so that by the time, like I said, by the time you get to the ending there, I think that there is this line here between being an honorable man and a great man mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how he chooses to do the dishonorable thing and he goes off and he goes on to be great. But the entire time, the lack of honor uh, where it's eating away at him on the inside and manifests itself in the external world mm -hmm. that 
it all comes crashing down upon him one way or another. Or it's just a simple fact that on a long enough timeline, we're all going to die anyway. Whatever it is, he is never able to live, I think, with himself knowing uh, that he had his chance to do the honorable thing and he didn't take it. Instead, he lived a life that would be recorded in the history books as considered great. And, you know, yeah, I, I, I just find that contrast there between those two to be so incredibly fascinating because throughout the entire movie in the lead up to that realization you know we're getting all these little snippets of him ultimately making that decision and i do find then like the fact that you know the fact that it's like it's like la la land i'm sorry this is gonna be a weird comparison but (laughs) it's like the ending of la la land where we see what could have been Mm-hmm. between Ryan yeah. Stone and, and uh, Ryan, uh, Emma, Ryan Stone. Stone. <laughs> Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. We'll put them together. They're Ryan Stone. And so um, we see what could have been between them, but then we get the reality and what actually does happen between them. Mm-hmm. So I like that the movie gives you a visualization of the what could have been, but then hits you with the reality of what is. And this movie does exactly the same thing here as well. Um, so... You can choose to live in either reality because the movie has kind of given you both. But the real, real, real truth of the matter is in the end. Yeah, the guy, the guy, the guy goes through with it. He goes through with it. And I think the I think the moment that it becomes apparent to both the audience and to him is when he removes the. I don't even know what you would call it. Like uh, the, the protection. Yeah. Yeah. I, what I love is that what prompts the whole thing is, you know, he asks the green knight is, is that, is that all there is? Mm-hmm. And if my memory serves, the green knight says, or something to the effect of what else could there be? I think he says, what else would there be? Yeah. What else would there be? Mm-hmm. And that's when he goes on this. Okay. So I do escape. What, what else would there be? And it gives, we see his, what we is eventually revealed to be his thought process of what life would be. And it is the life that these knights led only again, like a sort of cynical version of it. That is stripping all of the glory of what we normally associate with the life of these medieval knights and other noble figures and he realizes no mm-hmm. the honorable thing is to i mean yeah i could have that life and it would be a lie because it's not who i am doing that is not actually honorable in any way and nothing i would do after this after making this decision to do the dishonorable thing nothing else that i do could ever be honorable and that is what gives him the, or in my interpretation, that is what gives him the impetus to remove the enchantment and say, fuck it, basically. <laughs> and in doing so, he does the right thing. He passes the test. But unfortunately, he failed literally every other test given to him. So off with your head. What was the fox supposed to be? Because I, at first, was getting the impression that the fox was... A manifestation of his mother but the fox is at times dissuading him from moving forward with his journey so i i kind of 
push that out of my brain after a little while. Yeah, I thought it was his mother also. But now when you say the pushing away thing, now I'm just confused. (laughs) I mean, the fox doesn't speak and like stop him until near the end, which makes Mm -hmm. like in my brain, I'm also almost thinking of like the mother having second thoughts about it. Yeah. Or it's just another test. That too. Yeah, literally everything that happens in the movie is a test. And Mm -hmm. that is it. The fox is telling him, the fox, whom he saved from death, (laughs) is now saying, you know, thank you so much for saving me from death. You may have done a small honorable thing. So let me give you one last chance to be dishonorable and not go. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's like the easy way out is always being presented to him. Yeah. The other possible reading of this is, you know, all of these stories of Arthur and the Roundtable Knights, they're all Christian parables, right? And so he does that with this, <laughs> counterintuitively, with this magic object that is supposed to give him protection. And it that, in a way, becomes a metaphor for faith. And for, in I think, in Lowry's view, that's also a metaphor for Christianity mm-hmm. and how that maybe it really doesn't protect you. I mean, aren't the first lines of dialogue said in this movie, Christ is born? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because it's Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, and he gets water splashed on his face, so there's like <laughs> maybe some sort of a baptism like reading that or you Christ can look is, into there. Christ is risen, I think. Oh, is that what it was? Okay, I thought it was Christ is born, my bad. Maybe. I, I can't or, remember. It was one of the two. Yeah. Or simply, Dev Patel is Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing, too, about this movie. Um, it is incredibly sexy, not just in terms of its atmosphere and cinematography, but, man, like, Dev Patel, I can't deny, he's a good-looking dude. And then you just put him in scenes with Felicia Vikander and, you know, sure, Joel Egerton, let's let's go. Let I, You know what? I can totally understand how that also was a test because who wouldn't want to, you know, be involved in a threesome in, in that nice, luxurious castle and not go on their journey? I, mean, I would. I would, I would <laughs> absolutely let, stay there and let the demon ghost couple ravage me. I, <laughs> I, I'm just throwing that out there to the world. <laughs> but, and also, let's not... Let's not count out Ray Finneson here because look, the Green Knight is kind of sexy too. <laughs> In a very ent like way. Hmm. Interesting. I do love his voice work here. <laughs> so good. Oh, yeah. I, I've said before on our review of Gunpowder Milkshake that he's got one of the coolest voices right now in Hollywood. And this movie just perfectly knows how to utilize it. Um, and also, too, this is also probably the most vulnerable and, like, withering I've heard Sean Harris's voice in a movie before. Because, <laughs> oh, like, I feel like it, it, late, late, lately in every movie I see him in, it feels like he's always struggling to speak. Well, here it's like, no, we're, we're giving you a role where, like, you're old and dying. So it's like, you know, you must go on these quests, my dear boy. <laughs> I recently watched um, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, and it took me all of the Green Knight to be like, oh. where do I know this guy from? <laughs> and, I figured, and I like saw it on Letterboxd, I looked up, I said to my boyfriend, I was like, I was like, Ben, look, do you remember? And he was like, oh, God. I, I think he, too, is one of the more fascinating and fun to watch character actors that we have working today right now. And then also... 
I, once again, got to just kind of sing the praises of Alicia Vikander just playing two roles in this movie. Um, I, I think that she, right now, this year with this and potentially with Blue Bayou, which I haven't seen yet, um, I think she could be looking at um, a possible second wind in her career right now. Because uh, ever since her Oscar win, I feel like she's kind of struggled to find her find her place, if you will. You know, she had a big blockbuster movie with Tomb Raider and a couple of smaller films. And, you know, last year with The Glorias and now with this and uh, Blue Bayou uh, coming out, I feel like, you know, she, she might be getting a little bit of uh, a rebound, if you will. I'm so glad. I mm-hmm. love watching her on screen. I think she has... A- beautiful face for a film and just knows how to use it and the most minute little uh, changes mean something so deep and I love how she tackles these two very different characters and I'm absolutely obsessed with the way she says lady yeah. <laughs> her and her silly accent <laughs> I love yeah. it funny <laughs> I also like her costume and when she's playing, you know, the lady in the castle. And to quote oh. Nicole, oh. Padme Amidala called and she wants her <laughs> costume back. <laughs> yes, yes so Nicole. Beautiful. She's in the hairstyle. I was like, is this Padme Amidala? What's going on here? I loved it. Fantastic. All right. Let's get over to final thoughts now. Casey Lee Clark, final thoughts on The Green Knight. Anything that we didn't mention that you want to mention or reiterate? I you talked a lot about and while I think the the second act the middle portion it is probably the slowest part of the movie I did enjoy a lot of the scenes maybe because they're just so strange mm-hmm. you know like the part with like the the giants the interlude part the part with Winifred the woman with the the head there was unlike the house there was all just these strange things right that was the entire the point of the movie where I just kept being like what's happening here? What's going on? Like that, it kept me, kept me moving, even if it was very slow. Like that was a part that I left leaving with. Although I think as that ending was happening, like in it, I was like almost mad at it. But once it was fully over, I could like appreciate how brilliant it was. Yeah. A lot to think about still. Alrighty. Next up, Sarah Clements. I just wanted to say, if anyone knows like where to find that hymn that they were those women were singing in the score, that'd be great. That Christmas hymn. I want it on my Spotify mm. playlist, like ASAP. Mm. You know, busted out by the fire with some hot apple cider. <laughs> <laughs> and also just I was just so um, um, you know, really impressed by the look of the giants and how differently how now how human they looked because we don't normally see giants who look like that. I thought that was a really cool, a really cool touch. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Dan. Um, I don't have any final thoughts other than like, I think I've said just everything and yeah, the first part I think, and I think do, I do think that the dark cinematography sort of helped <laughs> combine with the slow pacing of the first act definitely helped me be like almost nodding off a little during the first hour. But then um, again, like once he goes on this journey, it gets a lot more interesting. And like Casey said, there's just these weird beats. It it is so, uh, it's almost hallucinate, not hallucinogenic, hallucinatory. 
in a way that I see all too rarely. And I love the big swing. I just do. I love that David Lowry didn't just take a big swing and make a medieval fantasy epic. He made a very deconstructive, counterintuitive, strange, unlike any Arthurian epic we've ever seen before. And, uh, ah, <laughs> cinema. <laughs> I concur. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you're saying there, Dan, Casey, Sarah, all of you here. I I couldn't help but be not so not disappointed. That's not the right word because I do like this movie quite a bit. But I I I was taken aback, I'll just say, by the approach that David Lowry did choose to take the material in. And there's a part of me that selfishly does want to see a more streamlined version of this. Maybe one day, I don't know, maybe there one day there would be two cuts put out there, but I highly doubt that. And quite frankly, I don't even know if I need it so much um, because I do think that the version that we got here instead is ultimately better for the longevity and shelf life of this movie. So in that regard, I'm very, very grateful for it. It just wasn't what I was expecting. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Like I said, I I do have a personal issue, though, with movies that sometimes maybe do move a little too slow. Um, they do threaten to lose me. And so I'm watching this movie in the theater and my mind is kind of trailing off during some scenes. But like I said before, this is all by design because you're supposed to be getting lost in this movie. You're supposed to be getting lost in so many different elements of this movie, so much so that by the time it is over, uh, Sarah, I'm going to go back to what you said before, dizzying is the feeling that one gets when they walk out of it, when it all is said and done. And trying to piece together all of the thoughts and ideas of this movie is trying to communicate. I would argue that it does successfully communicate them over to the audience, but... I do think that there are times where it could have just been a little less ambiguous and could have been a little bit more spelled out for us at times. That's all. Uh, Like, I do think there are some shots that linger on some moments where it's like, okay, this is clearly symbolic, but it's like, I just don't have time to (laughs) ruminate on it and figure out what it exactly means. But that's what a repeat viewing is for, right? So... In the end, I think everyone's going to view it a little differently. And I think people are going to either walk into it thinking that it was a huge waste of time uh, and it was not a, you know, sword clanging action epic on the level of like a Game of Thrones or something like that, you know, and that's fine. Uh, But I do think that there are people who are maybe, you know, if you guys have taken a look at like the cinema score and things like that, I think people are going in with the wrong expectations for this movie. Uh, With that said, uh, art should be challenging. I'll just leave it at that. All right. Great out of 10. I'm giving this an incredibly strong 8 out of 10. I even think it could go up even higher on a repeat viewing. I think I might even get to a 9 at some point. But for now, I'm going 8 out of 10. What about you, Casey? I'm also going with an 8 out of 10. Dan? I'm also an 8 out of 10. A weak 8 out of 10. But an 8 out of 10. Sarah? I feel like I'm a 9 out of 10. Ooh. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> Very cool. And we're all in agreement that this is a Christmas movie, right? Hell yeah. Oh, totally. Okay. Christmas game. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a dirty joke I want to make, but I'm not going to make it. Suffice <laughs> to say, I think you all know what I'm thinking of right now. Uh, wait, wait, did y'all scream at that moment? Uh huh. Oh, I definitely let out like a little bit of a. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> my audience loved that. I thought we never mentioned. My audience laughed a lot. Really? Mine, there was gigg- some giggles. Yeah. Mine was boring and dead silent. I was like, why didn't y'all just go see Jungle Cruise? Seriously. <laughs> Mine was giggling at like the silly things the animals were doing. Like there's that like yeah. opening shot with like the geese messing with that goat. Like we were all like, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it was funnier than I was expecting going in. Not that it's a funny movie, but it had moments that were much funnier than anything I was expecting. Okay, now in terms of any Oscar potential for The Green Knight, I'm actually going to surprise ever so slightly by saying this. I do think that there is a world where this gets one nomination, like a lone nomination for either its production design or its cinematography. I could see cinematography. I think I could see this like showing up at Guild because of their, you know, separated categories and that kind of leading it, you know, possibly mm-hmm. down that path. I, like, I understand that The Lighthouse was shot in black and white, but if a movie like The Lighthouse can get an Oscar nomination for cinematography, why can't this? I'm interested that you chose production design and cinematography because I was going to say costume and makeup. I was also going to say costume, yeah. So... In terms of the makeup, um, are you thinking of the work that went into The Green Knight? Mostly, yes. Okay. Because there was also a part of me that thought that in a different world, not in a world where we only have five nominees for sound, but if we still had the different the divide between sound editing and sound mixing, I could see a world where this got a sound editing nomination. Sure. But we're not living in that world anymore, unfortunately. No. So... I want to agree with you. I feel like there would have to be more showy work on other characters. And while the work is definitely strong, you know, it's a period uh, film at the fantasy, you know, at the end of the day here. Um, I I think that other than the green, I don't know if the green knight is enough. I have mixed things about it. I think, I think I feel better about it than I do something like, say, Suspiria, even that had more makeup, but was still essentially like one character. Mm -hmm. I think the reason that makes me feel better about this is that the Green Knight is like all over this thing's marketing. Mm -hmm. And he is one of the more memorable parts of the movie. And there are numerous close-ups that show just how good that makeup work is. Mm -hmm. Plus you have the... Uh, work on Alicia Vikander to make those two characters feel so different. Sure. Especially her hair work when she is the, the, the real lady. Yeah. Um, and there's also work on Joel Edgerton. There's work on the old age makeup on Alicia Vikander and Dev Patel that happens for like five seconds. Oh, you know what? Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It looks really good. Yeah. That salt and pepper beard. Hell yeah. Oh, Sarah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I, I still I still think that there is a world where the cinematography could happen. I agree. That's where I'm going right now. I just feel like this movie has so many uh, sources of light that it's playing with. There are so many colors utilized. It has some striking exterior shots. I could see it really standing out in people's minds as we get closer to the end of the year. I, I think that A24 will have to really go to bat for it because 
I it's making a splash now, but now is August. Yeah, no, I, I don't like disagree. All with you. the movies are yet to come. Um, so whatever it gets, it's it's going to have to really be pushed. And I think they can. I think they can push it in the craft mm-hmm. categories very easily. All right. Well, that'll do it here for our discussion of The Green Knight here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Casey Lee Clark, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Casey Lee Clark. Sarah Clements. You can find me on Twitter at Mildred Spears. And Dan Baer. You can find me on Twitter at Dancing Dan on Film. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. My brain hurts. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.